Now, I just want to say before I get into this that you know, I'm going to walk through the theology of the side that, you know, on the one side of the divide, I call the spirit chasers. These are people who really just want the experiences of the Holy Spirit and everything comes with it. They want to see miracles in their lives and they're, they're willing to, to go to great lengths to get that. Um, and then next week, I'm hoping we're going to shift gears to talk about the other side. But uh, as I do this, I look at theology. There's some theology that I think is a little scary. And in order to show that I, you know, to do it right, I kind of need to bring in quotes and things from people who teach this. And some of them are famous, uh, best-selling authors and mega church pastors. And I just, before I start, I want to say one thing, and that is I'm not saying any of these people are bad people. I'm not saying they're going to hell. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is they're engaging in some dangerous teaching, and if, if uh, we don't be careful, we can get sucked into a bad area because it really sets us up for, a, for some problems in our lives, I believe, and I'll tell you why. So um, a couple of these people I kind of go back to again and again and again because I happen to have their materials for one reason or another. It's not because I think they're worse than someone else, so I just want to say that start. But here is the verse that's kind of guiding us. This is our duty. I've, had, I've preached a little bit on this way in the past, and, and I've had some people get upset. And you always have people say, hey, why are you attacking other Christians? Why do Christians attack Christians? Can't you just leave them alone? Yeah, sure, we can leave them alone, except for this verse here. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It is not only our right, it's our duty to take a look at every teaching that comes down your way, including every teaching from Spirit Chapel, and test it against the Word. Is it stand up? Is it right? Is it true? If it isn't, drop it. Abstain from it. It's evil. And that's like you know, Paul's really kind of just breaking this down real easy for you. It's either good or it's evil, and, and you need to pick it, and you need to, you need to hold on to that which is true. So uh, we're going to be using this verse a lot as just kind of justification for why we're doing this. And it's in time for us to examine all things. Now, in both sides, I believe that if there's one question kind of driving a lot of people we've talked about here before, and that's why, just why don't we see miracles like we see in the New Testament? I mean, we see them, we read them, not just Book of Acts. <laughs> Jesus does a bunch of them too. And so what happened? You know, what happened to the church? It, it was there, now it doesn't seem to be there. We pray for miracles, we're not really seeing them. What's going on? So both sides of the divide have an answer for that. And so I want to talk about this answer first, and you know, like I said, next week we'll get into the other. Uh, but there are a couple major voices. Now, this is, again, one of the reasons I came up with the term spirit chasers instead of naming certain groups is because it's not fair, I don't think, to put everybody in the same category, right? In other words, I could say, well, all charismatics, but not all charismatics are the same. Uh, not all Pentecostals are the same. Not all full gospels are the same. So um, you know, there are some people who identify with a certain group of, of believers, but they don't teach the same thing. So I didn't want to put them all in one category. That's why I created my own category for them. And um, so I'm going to go now to one of the probably preeminent voices, and it's been one of the preeminent voices for this group of people for a very long time. I'm talking decades. He's a guy out of Texas, actually, uh, which I spent some time not too far from where his church was, a man named Kenneth Copeland. And I'm going to show you some quotes. Uh, I went onto his website and I pulled them right off his website. Why aren't there miracles? You know, you type that in, look at his website, and this is what it says. Whatever your need today, whatever it is, God is in the miracle business. He has a miracle in mind for you. He loves you. He doesn't want you sick, broke, or without something you desire in your life. He makes no distinction here. <laughs> sick, rich, and you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Whatever you want in your life, uh, you, sh you want that. He wants you to have that. He's always ready to do a miracle 
always. Now, why don't miracles happen? Well, faith is what opens the flow of signs, miracles, and wonders. Real faith has an expectancy. So, as faith rises, the flow of the Holy Spirit gets stronger, and miracles will flow more and more. But when people stop expecting, they dry up. That's why we don't see as many miracles in the church. People aren't expecting to see them. So he's talking about you know, this idea that faith just flows, and the more you see them, the more you get them, and the church just doesn't expect miracles anymore. It's a, it's a teaching that was lost to the church. church. If you listen to them, you know, it's come to say it, it's, a, it's a, the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and the miracles. I mean, he's gone way beyond the gifts here to, to include everything. It's just something that, that has a teaching that's been lost to the church. It used to be there, but it isn't, and we're just trying to bring back this lost teaching. So faith falters, faith dries up. What? causes that? What causes faith to falter? Now, there's a lot of things there, uh, and I'm kind of just going after one of them today because, you know, this could take a long time if I don't. So, I'm now going to shift gears. I'm going to shift to another preeminent voice in, in this movement, a, a woman named Joyce Myers who wrote many books, but one of her, I believe her first bestseller is a book called The Battlefield of the Mind. This is like a cottage industry now. You can have mugs with it, calendars with it, t-shirts, you know, the whole, whole nine yards. It's a uh, been done and reprinted and done and reprinted and done and reprinted. I'm going to, so I'm going to quote from her a lot because I actually have this book. That's why it's just easier for me to find stuff here. Uh, let me put it this way, she says. If we think fleshly thoughts, wrong thoughts, negative thoughts, we cannot walk in the Spirit. It seems as if renewed God-like thinking is vitally necessary to a successful Christian-like. God-like thinking. You have to think like God. And so quickly, this whole thing, you know, the negative thoughts and everything, the problem quickly becomes doubt. And um, so if we're going to kind of take a look at this, it's not just faith. There's the other side of faith, which is the opposite of faith, as they teach it, and that's doubt. And we have to get, we have to, you know, get our faith going up and getting our doubt flowing away, and that's the secret to everything. It's kind of like, you know, there is no real secret to dieting, right? We all know. You just need to consume fewer calories than you burn. So you either up your exercise or you decrease your calories or a little bit of both. There's always some combination, but every diet basically comes out of those two things, you know, up your, in, up, up your intake and, and, and uh, lo lower the number of calories you're eating, and, and you do that. And, and you'll lose weight. That's kind of the idea here. You've got these two kind of factors in, in this. You've got faith, you've got doubt. You want to increase your faith, you want to lower your doubt. And uh, there are many scriptures that they can go to, but there are a few that they seem to like to a lot, and this one here in, in Matthew is one of them. Uh, now, the disciples come to Jesus privately and said, now, why couldn't we cast this demon out? So they tried to do something, and they failed. And Jesus said, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. You just have to have faith. Now, here's the problem. I don't know anybody who's ever done this. In the entire, my entire life, I've been Christian for, you know, a long time now, decades and decades, and I've never seen anybody move a mountain. I've never seen anybody move a tree. You know, I've just never seen it happen. And they, they said, you know, Jesus said you could, and... Um, I guess maybe it's because it's a silly miracle to some degree. I mean, you don't really need to move it. And that's actually part of the reason why they like this, this, this phrase. Because, look, if Jesus is saying you can move mountains, then that Ford Mustang in your driveway is really not a stretch. Because moving mountains is kind of silly. But Jesus is saying anything is possible. Nothing will be left off from you. So that really is it. So if nobody's ever done that, is the problem that nobody has faith. Well, Jesus says that you just need the faith of a mustard seed how much is that really? It's not very much. A mustard seed's a very, very small, little, tiny seed. And so 
if I only need that much faith, is it possible, could it be, I already have that faith? And they actually teach you, yes, you do. Uh, this is also from Battlefield of Mind. The Bible says that God gives every man a measure of faith, Romans 12, 3. God has placed faith in our heart, but the devil tries to negate our faith by attacking us with doubt. So, so they're actually teaching, you do have enough faith to see miracles. Your problem is you have doubt too because the devil is planting doubt. And so if you have doubt, you will not be able to see the miracles. So the thing that stifles your faith is doubt. And unfortunately, unfortunately not just your doubt. It, it, be, it extends beyond your doubt. Uh, and I'm explaining the teaching as, as, as straight up as I can. And we'll talk about you know, my concerns with it later. But, but, but the teaching is that it's not just your doubt. It's also the doubt of the people around you if you're praying for a miracle. You know, like when we were praying for Roberta, we had a prayer meeting here. It's not just her doubt. It's everybody's doubt. And for there, they go to a specific verse in the Gospel of Mark. And rather than me trying to explain it to you, let me bring a rising star from the Word of Faith movement, a megachurch pastor. And I wish Diane had been here because it's her second favorite pastor, a guy named Stephen Furtick. The power of God was in Jesus, the healing power of God, the restoring power of God. The same power that made demons flee was in Nazareth, but Jesus could not release it because it was trapped in their unbelief. And there's one thing that even Jesus can't do, one thing that even the Son of God can't do. Even Jesus cannot override your unbelief. Okay, so they go this verse, like I said, we'll look at the verse in a minute. And they say, even Jesus, this is, this is right when he starts his ministry, he goes uh, to his hometown, Nazareth, and uh, they, it says they just didn't believe it was him, that he was the Messiah. So who is this? He's just the, he's just, we know his sisters. He just lives up the road from us. He can't possibly be the Messiah. And Jesus d could not do many miracles there because they were unbelief, but Mark says. And uh, he actually then goes down to Galilee and starts performing miracles all over the place. And so they're saying even other people's doubt will impact you. So boy, you can understand why we don't see miracles. It's not just your doubt anymore. It's not just the doubt of the person you're praying for. Anybody present, their doubt can impact the miracles. So um, how do you get through this? Well, you have to remake your mind to remove the, mouth, the doubt. That's some of the whole purpose of the battlefield of the mind. That's what it is. There's all kinds of things that we've learned and we need to unlearn them. Now, at this point, and this is where things get uncomfortable, we're moving out of Scripture because there's really no Scripture. You can look. There's really no Scripture on how to remove doubt. There's really no Scripture. There's only one Scripture that even talks about increasing faith. So for something that's so critically important, and I believe faith is really important, the Bible seems to be pretty mum on it. Uh, so you kind of have to reach outside the Bible, and that's where people get upset with them because they're going to extra Christian uh, curriculum at this point. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of what, uh, what she teaches in the battlefield of the mind. How to get rid of the doubt from your life. Because if you could get rid of doubt, you know, bring it down to zero, then even the mustard seed of faith is going to come through. And so then uh, she, she says this. The Bible says that a tree is known by its fruit. This, and it's true, by the way. The Bible says that. The same is true in our lives. Thoughts bear fruit. The Bible doesn't say that. Think good thoughts and the fruit in your life will be good. Think bad thoughts and the fruit in your life will be bad. Um, she doesn't show scripture for that because it actually doesn't say that. So going back to the to the to the, the kind of walking through their their uh, a simple walk through the, through this this setup, I, I find these things: miracles are your right. You know, God wants you to have them. So that's, they're your right, and you have all the faith you need. You really do to get started. You know, your faith will grow. That's fine. You need to remove doubt because even Jesus couldn't do miracles surrounded by doubt. And the key of all that is the mind the battlefield of the mind. 
think the right thoughts, learn how to reprogram your mind, uh, renew your mind in Christ. They use scripture, they don't say reprogram, that's Tony Robbins. Um, basically the same teaching, but uh, he uses different terminology. So um, if you look at this and say, well, this is the teaching, uh, what, what's wrong with that? You know, what, what in the world is wrong with this? So, so first of all, let me just say, there's part of it that's kind of appealing. Uh, you know, the, the word of faith, charismatic, whatever you want to call them, the spirit chasers, they're your friends who are always up. You know, they're always in good moods and they're always very positive thinking. Uh, you hang around them, you feel better. You know, it's like, to some degree, they're that part of the family that always seems to be having a good time. You know, it's like, I kind of like hanging around them. What's wrong with them? Well, if it's just your family, nothing's wrong with it. And in fact, I'll even say that an awful lot of the teaching, just the teaching, even if it isn't biblically based, isn't bad. Um, you know, I find it's easier to live life as an optimist than a pessimist. I find it's easier to be around people who are upbeat and not down all the time. I'm certainly not suggesting that what you want to be is depressed. You know, I'm not saying any of those things. Um, that's all fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And if that's what they're teaching, which kind of what Tony Robbins teaches, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's fine. You want to go do that. Where I have a problem is they say this is actually the missing spiritual teaching from the church. We're moving out of the, this is going to help you physically and emotionally, into this is going to help you spiritually. And that's where I have a problem. Uh, and the reason that I have a problem is because everything they say from a spiritual standpoint is wrong. I mean, everything, every point I just named is, is wrong. I won't have a chance to get into them all. Um, but let me just start with this one right here. Uh, your mind is not the key. And let's just start there. The battlefield is not in your mind, folks. It's not. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It actually goes contrary to Scripture because Jesus tells us this. He says, don't you understand? The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes, watch this, evil thoughts. So if we're doubting God, wouldn't you call that an evil thought? Some, some translations will say impure thoughts. Okay? Wouldn't you call that? It's coming from the heart. And so do murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. Jesus says, here's the problem. The problem isn't your mind, it's the heart. Jesus Christ didn't come here to save your mind. He came here to save your heart. You live with Jesus in your heart, not in your mind. And by focusing on everything in the mind, we're trying to actually say, your spiritual awareness, your spiritual life, your spiritual miracles, everything is controlled by your mind, but your mind doesn't control your spirit, your heart does. Listen, when you say the battlefield's in your mind, the devil laughs, because he knows if he has your heart, the battle for your mind is pointless. Eventually, you will do what your mind, what your mind will do what your heart tells you to do. Where your heart is, that's what it goes. And that's what Jesus says, I'm after your heart. I'm always after your heart. We see all kinds of scriptures about this in Proverbs. Uh, Above everything else, guard your heart. For everything you do comes from that. In, in Romans uh, 7, Paul is talking about his life as a Pharisee. And he's trying to tell, tell them, look, I thought I was doing the right thing. But God actually used my pride and my love of the law. I mean, I'm sorry, the devil actually used my pride and my love of the law to twist me around and do horrible things. And he says, in my mind, I'm serving God's law, but sin controls my desire, so I'm a slave to the control of sin. So I might have thought I was doing the right thing, when I persecuted the church, as he was talking about, he actually goes out and persecutes the church. In my mind, he said, I was obeying the law. I was clear in my mind what I was doing, but I was still 
just, a, just following my heart, my desires, whatever my little heart desires is what I was doing. So I was still just a slave to the control of sin. So we have to understand that miracles are brought about by God's power. They can't be controlled by anything in this world. There's nothing in this world that can control God's power. Nothing. And, and so when we start actually thinking that, uh, you know what, I can control things with my mind, we're, we're, we're walking away from the teaching of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means from the body, fleshly, like, you know, the mind. Our weapons aren't the mind. But mighty in God, it's spiritual, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. They actually quote this verse is why you need to make sure that you're working on your mind, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying we're using the power of God to bring everything, the strongholds down and bringing everything together. If you try to do this with just mind, Jedi mind tricks, you're in for a hard road. And, and it's, it's not going to work because Jesus tells us it's not going to work. The battlefield is not in the mind. Now, interestingly enough, there is a religion that teaches that mind controls the spirit. It's just not Christianity. It's Hinduism. Hinduism teaches you this. In fact, this is not the Hindu... The stuff I read for you folks, I'm telling you, I mean, some of this stuff hurts my heart to go in there and read this stuff. I'm like, I could go, go take a shower or something or throw up. I don't know. Uh, so I read the Hindu.org, right? Hinduism.org. There are 14 centers in the physical body called chakras that are actually regions of mind power, each one governing certain aspects of our inner being. By examining the functions of these mind centers, we can clearly control our own position on the spiritual path. That's Hinduism. The spirit is controlled by the mind in Hinduism, not Christianity. By the way, this is a yoga pose. I don't know how many people realize that, but yoga comes straight out of Hinduism. I, I, I was talking to a Christian once, and they said, uh, well, I, I, go to, I go to yoga, but it's, you know, I don't care about... I said, well, do they have the little you know, Hindu idols and stuff? Well, ah, they have them, decoration. There's just decoration. It doesn't mean anything to me. I said, well, tell me how every session starts. They said, oh, you just go in and you bow and you say namaste. And I said, what does that mean? He said, I think it means peace be with you. It does not mean peace be with you. Do you know what it really means? <laughs> she said, no. I said, it means I bow to you. You're walking in and you're saying, I bow to you, to the instructor who's standing in front of this idol that you say doesn't matter, but it matters to the idol. <laughs> and it matters to the God who watches you bow and say, I bow to you in front of an idol you got to be careful, man. We just, oh, it doesn't mean anything. It, it means things, right? But, but getting back to the, the, the teaching now. So doubt, it needs to be removed, they tell us. And the reason doubt needs to be removed is because even in, as we see in the scripture, Jesus himself could not produce miracles when there was doubt around him. Uh, so again, nothing in heaven or on earth can limit the power of God, but could it be true that other people's doubt is a barrier to us seeing miracles? Is that a possibility? Could that be true? It's taught, you know, you saw Stephen Furtick, he seemed sure of himself, you know, he held that microphone in that, you know, cool kind of kill zone way, uh, you know, was just ready to drop it and be done. He was really cool like that. Is it true that, that God cannot work past your unbelief? Your miracles can't happen because of your unbelief. Is that true? Um, well, it's true if you only go to the Gospel of Mark and look there. But it's not true if you take a look at the entire Gospel. So I'm going to teach you something that I had never learned before. I just, got, I just found this, um, this past week or so. 
from a sermon I was watching from 1976 of a guy I really like named Winky Pratney, and he kind of threw it off the cuff. It's like he was, it was a minor point on his way to another point, and I stopped him. Wait a minute, what did he just say? Because I'd never heard this before. Maybe you guys knew all this, but I didn't. But let me ask you this question. Why do we have the synoptic gospels? Now, let me explain what those are in case somebody doesn't know. So the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic is a theology word. It's not in the Bible. Now, we have four Gospels, of course. We have John 2. But we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're the same basic stories of Jesus, encounters with Jesus, told from three different viewpoints. That word synoptic, Greek, you know, the S-Y-N, the syn, like synergy, uh, synchronized, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's brought together. And then the last word tells you what they're bringing together. And optics is vision, which means that basically we're bringing the different viewpoints from three different people together right? And you actually uh, set them in parallel is how that word implies. It's implied that they're down together, parallel, and three different views bring views together. Okay. Um, it's a little confusing, though, because sometimes they don't agree. I don't know if you've noticed that. And if you haven't, believe me, your non-believing friends have, because they'll throw it at you from time to time. Oh, the Bible contradicts itself. You know, they don't even know what that means, but they've heard it, you know, and so they'll throw it at you. The Bible contradicts itself. So why would God let this happen? Why would God do it this way? It seems to me Jesus taught for three years. There's a lot of things he did. It seems to me that we have three different gospels. Why don't each one take the you know, early years, the middle years, the late years? Wouldn't that be a better approach? But for some reason, God said, nope, I'm going to have three gospels tell the same basic years just from three different viewpoints. Why? Let me ask it this way. Why isn't John a synoptic gospel? Because if, if, Jesus, if God said, well, here's the best way of doing it. We should go over these, 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 these points. Why not have a fourth? For that matter, we have 12 apostles. Why not have 12? We only have three. Why don't we have two? See, I, I believe that's a significant thing. I believe the fact that we have three gospels, and then we have a fourth that's not a synoptic, is a very important thing that I never caught before. And it's important, I believe, because when it comes to this idea of accuracy, there is this idea that some of you may know if you've studied in geometry or, or anything called triangulation. You may have heard that term. Uh, triangulation is what, what a surveyor does when they, when they lay out the, the plot of your land. Triangulation is what an army artillery man does. Um, he has a spotter and he shoots it, you know, he try, try to hit that guy, and so they shoot a little shell out, and the spotter goes, oh, and it'll tell him how many degrees off he is, and the next one is tell him how many degrees off. That third one drops right on that guy's head. You need three points to be accurate, and this is well known. It's, and if anybody even build anything, it's what you do it when you build something. If I'm going to make a cabinet and I need a piece of wood that's cut exactly 35 and 3 sixteenths high and I've got a 48-inch board, what do I do? I take it down and I make that mark and I measure that out carefully and I mark it. Now what I do? I move down the board and I make that same and I make another mark and I do it a third time because you need three points to guarantee that you're drawing a straight line. They probably taught you that in shop class and geometry class. Triangulation is important. Think about this. God gave us three different versions of those things. See, I believe we're supposed to use them all together. You're supposed to bring as many points as you can so when you put your straight edge down, that line's straight. If you only have one point, I've never ever done this, you know, make a point and make a line, you could be off. It doesn't take much, but by the time you get to the end of that board, you're way off. And I believe that's what happens a lot of times with teaching. They grab one point because they like it. They go to the Mark Gospel to tell this story because they like what he says there because he literally says they could, he could not do miracles because of their lack of belief. That's what it says in Mark. 
Matthew doesn't put it that way. When you take these two verses, and this is interesting, by the way, these are almost identical. Very rarely do you see this. They're almost, I mean, you could bring the paragraphs together and very little verbiage changes between them. So I'm going to do that. I'm doing it right here. Um, and we're going to do this Thursday, by the way, with a bunch of this other stuff. We're going to triangulate uh, on a bunch of these scriptures. But there, this, this is when he's starting his ministry. And they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? By the way, I do not understand how the Catholic Church says that she had no other children. I'm not sure where that comes from. That's one of the teachings of the Catholic Church. She had Jesus and that was it. Where then did this man get all these things, the t- things he's teaching? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his home household. I'm thinking when I read this, why did we open Spirit Chapel in my hometown? We should have moved, you know, someplace, but we didn't. Okay. And he did not and could not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Could not and did not. Now, you put those two together, it kind of changes it, doesn't it? Could not and did not. Because could not actually has two meanings. We could mean physically could not, or we could mean morally could not. Morally could not is like Victoria and I walk out here some Saturday, after, Saturday afternoon in the summertime, hot, and Victoria says to me, I could really go for an ice cream cone right now, right? And as we're walking towards a car, here comes some eight-year-old kid out of Crumbs Creamery down here with his big double-dip ice cream cone walking past us. It's like God provided it. Take it, you know? And the kid walks right by, and I look at Victoria and say, why did you take the ice cream cone? You just said you wanted one. There was one. It's like wheels on wheels. Look at that. Just take it, you know? Just take it. And she says, I couldn't do that. Hey, listen, I've seen my wife when she needs ice cream. She could have done that, you know? That kid would not have stood a chance, right? She's strong. Don't let her fool you. She's strong. She could have taken it. What she means is, I morally could not do that. That would be wrong. That would be wrong. It would be morally improper for me to do that. When you just read it, though, which one is it? Is it morally he could not do the miracles? Or could he physically not do the miracles? Well, when you lay it along with Matthew, it's pretty obvious what it is. What it's saying is, morally, there's no way Jesus could do that. There's no way he could do that because morally it'd be wrong. There's something else that I want to pop into real quick, and that's I want to talk about the word that's used here for disbelief because it's actually not doubt. Um, The word that's used here is actually this one. Now, some of you who've been here coming for a while know that I get really caught up on this one word in the New Testament, pistis, which is the word that we always translate as faith, all right? You may notice, those of you who've done this, this word looks a lot like that word, and that's deliberate. What they're actually doing here is they're putting an A in front of the word pistis. It changes the, 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 the suffix as well, and they're saying apistis. This is a Greek thing. What this is, is it's the opposite of. It is literally the opposite of. Let me put it in numbers. Let me take it out of lexicon. Okay, so I have the number one. What's the number one's opposite? Anybody remember when you did opposites and reciprocals in sixth grade math? Anybody remember that? The opposite of one is negative one. That's its opposite. It's not the same thing, though, as zero. Zero is not the opposite of one. Now, if I put them on a scale and I put the words above it, here's what you'd see. One is faith. Negative one, apistos, is anti-faith. And zero is doubt. One is saying, I believe Jesus is going to do this. Zero is saying, I don't know, probably not, might. That's doubt, right? This is saying, I believe Jesus will not do it. It's different. 
And what Jesus says, and every time you go, if you go back and you go to the blue of the Bible and you take a look at it, every time he's saying disbelief, unbelief, and sometimes gets translated doubt, you go back and look at the words epistis. He's saying negative belief. These people in Nazareth, I'm sorry, Nazareth, was not sitting there and saying, eh, maybe I'll do it, maybe you won't. They're saying, he's not the Messiah. If they were sitting there watching him try and do a miracle, which he didn't even bother trying because he knew their hearts, they'd be sitting there sending up a prayer that they wouldn't get healed. When he went, to the, when he went into the to synagogues, you know, and all the rabbis and the, and the priests and everybody who did not want him to be the Messiah were there, they weren't saying, um, boy, let's, let's pray for this and join in. If there was a prayer being sent up, oh, dear God, Jehovah, don't let this work, you know, because they don't want him to be. So he's actually saying here, what, what, what the, the apostle's saying here is, is he could not do it because they're sitting there praying that he fails. He's not going to do that. It would be morally wrong for him to do that. That doesn't mean he can't do it, though. Jesus thrived in the midst of others' doubt. All the way up to the day he was resurrected from the dead. Do you think that the, the guy sitting out front guarding the tomb thought he might come back? No. Thought he was dead. Dead, dead, dead. Not coming back. Throughout his entire ministry, he's constantly doing miracles in front of people who doubt him. It happens all the time. One of my favorites, this one, this is a, he, he's on his way to, to heal this very important uh, guy's daughter. His name is Jarius. And his daughter was sick. And so they come get him. He's a very important man. And Jesus stops to heal someone else on the way. Consequently, the little girl dies. And so while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, and said, who was the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter's dead. Don't even bother the teacher anymore. He can't help you. She's dead. Now, overhearing what they said, Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And he didn't let anybody follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Okay, so that's the setup. And then they're going to go. And so when they go to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now, what these people are, professional mourners. They're actually sending in professional mourners. And, and the other gospel tells you they, they brought instruments with them. This is part of it. You know, they're going to actually mourn. And, you know, there was a kind of a tradition to send the soul off. Because they're getting ready to do all that. They're actually going to start this, this mourning. And they're going to play these, you know, mournful horns. And they're going to send the spirit off to the spirit world. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? She's not even dead. She's asleep. And they all laughed at him. I don't know about you, but that sounds like doubt. I would say that they're laughing at him because of doubt. I don't think it's because Jesus has a great delivery. You know, I don't think that in the midst of all this, he's, you know, you know Jesus is like, oh, who are these people? Or something like Jerry Seinfeld gets a laugh for saying almost nothing, right? I don't think that's it. I think actually Jesus said, she's sleeping. And they laughed at him because he's lunatic. She's dead. They saw her die. They all know she's dead. Everybody there knows she's dead. And then Jesus says, get out of here. And he takes the mother and the father and his three disciples to pray for her. And that's when the word of faith people say, see, he had to kick him out of the room. He had to get him out of the room before he could do the miracle because they had doubt. Really? Now, I'm wondering exactly how much wall we need to block the doubt because that's curious. I'm curious now right? If it's a wooden door, does that doubt get through? Do we need a brick door to keep the doubt out? You know, because well, that's what they're saying. They're saying proximity matters, right? Doubt only lasts, I guess, six feet or something. I don't know, because they're, they're saying if they're there, he couldn't have done the miracle. They had to kick him out. I've, I've actually heard this sermon. He had to kick him out. He had to take him out, because if they stayed there, he wouldn't be able to do it. He had to get rid of the doubt. Really? I, I'm wondering why. I'm wondering how far out they had to go. Excuse me, you guys are still within 25 feet of the miracle zone. 
back off, back off. No miracle's gonna happen here if doubt is within 25 feet, you know? No, come on, don't be crazy. Don't be crazy, it's nuts. Clearly, the fact that they told him she was dead was all the doubt he would have needed if doubt could affect Jesus Christ, but it couldn't. And that's the point. The point is that there is no amount of human doubt that can stop the purpose of the Lord. What God decides to do, no doubt's gonna stop. When he heals that guy in Bethesda, that's like one of the weirdest miracles he does to me. Because Bethesda is this pool, a bunch of sick people laying around. Everybody there is sick, everybody. And the, the belief was that an angel would come and stir the water, and the first one in the water would get healed. So this guy's a paraplegic, and he can't walk, and, and they, his family puts him there, but he's not close enough to the pool. So whenever it moves, before he can get there, somebody else gets in there and gets the healing. And when Jesus walks in, and you've got to get the picture of this, he's walking past sick people. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, right? You'd think Jesus would be walking through them, tap, 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 heal, 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 heal. You know, he just like, you know, walk through and just empty them all out. You know, healed, get out of my way, healed, get out of my way. Just so he'd get there faster, if nothing else. But Jesus is stepping around all these sick people, going to that one guy, and he asks him a question, do you want to be healed? And what does the man say? Yes, Lord Jesus, I have faith in you, please. No, he says, I can't be healed. My stupid family put me too far back. Every time it moves, I can't get up there. I can't get healed. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and go. And he picks up his mat and goes. You, you think anybody was sitting there with a lot of faith? No, there's the guy that expressed doubt, and he gets up. He's not even grateful. He turns him into the priest later. You know, it's like, I don't understand why God, but God, for whatever reason, had the purpose of healing that man. I don't know why. And when God determined to heal him, it doesn't matter. That man will be healed. This is one of my favorite verses. I love this, the psalmist. Once God has spoken and twice I have heard. That tells me when God spoke, it was so loud it echoed. It's like, you know, I'm still hearing it. It's like God spoke it and twice I heard, power belongs to God. That's who the power belongs to. It belongs to God. Our doubt can't stop God's power. That's just absolutely ridiculous. There's no way any of that could be true right? And the reason why I'm going through this is because if we grab onto this, we're going to, at at best, we're going to waste our time. And at worst, we get caught up in this cycle. Because here's what's great about this theology, if you're somebody who's selling it. It's impossible to prove it wrong. It's got a built-in correction loop. You know, if, if uh, you, know, you, you go through all this and you've done the books, you've done the DVDs and you go to the services and you're all pumped up and you've got this now and then, you know, one of your relatives or something, a kid or a spouse or something sick and you pray for them, they don't get healed and you go back to them and say, didn't work. What's the guy going to say? Well, did you doubt? Well, I don't think so. Ah, you said think. Sounds like doubt to me, right? I, can you promise me you didn't doubt? I guess I can't. Well, then you need another DVD set here. I'll sell it to you. We got it on sale. You need to keep working on this because you're the problem. And the weird thing is it actually makes faith into works because your miracle is entirely up to you now. God has nothing to do with it. If you get it right, God has no choice but to give it to you. And if you get it wrong, God couldn't give it to you if he wanted to. Your miracle is now entirely up to you. Your works, they turn faith into works. It's incredible. But the other thing is everybody else around they're only going to tell you the good stuff. They're only going to tell you about the things that happen. Their doubt, they're keeping to themselves because if they start expressing their doubt, they'll get kicked out, you know? So really, you're sitting around a bunch of people and no one's telling the truth. It's like, 
reading Facebook. Everybody's telling, everybody's telling you know, the things are great, but no one's really telling what's going on in their lives, you know, and, 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 and it has to be that way. And if you go in and say, well, I kind of had some doubt, well, that's why it happened. That, your doubt right there, that's why it happened. Or maybe somebody in your circle had doubt. If something happened, you need to get the doubt out. You, know, you need to shout at the devil, get him out of there, get the doubt out of the room. There's all kinds of techniques they have, none of them scriptural-based, in order to get the doubt away. And you need to do this because if you don't, you're not going to see the miracle. That's just the way it goes. You have to, you have, to have no doubt, zero doubt. Uh, and I, I, uh, I actually have thought about this before, uh, to have some kind of a healing service here. And before we heal, tell everybody, okay, the only way this will work, I'm telling you right now, the only way this works is if nobody here thinks of a yellow butterfly. Nobody can. <laughs> and we can just send them home right now because somebody thought of a yellow butterfly. Because if you're told not to, you do. And it's like probably everybody thinks of a yellow butterfly. It's like, well, guess it's not going to be healed. Yep, yeah, my, my record's perfect. Every time there was zero doubt, the person was healed. That's absolutely not the way this works. And um, you know, I've told this story before, uh, but Diane, our, our grief share um, teacher, she's, she's a cancer survivor. And uh, I don't know, a few months ago now, she came to me and said there was an anomaly on one of her tests. That's exactly how it started with Roberta. Exactly. There was an anomaly. Pray for me, Pastor. I'm going to go and I'm going to have a test done because something showed up in one of my tests. See, I was still kind of reaching this kind of faith. Oh, it, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. I didn't pray about it, I didn't ask God, I just, oh, it'll be okay, because I can't have any doubt, right? That's how I did it. Uh, not with Roberta, uh, no, that's how I did it with Roberta, not with Diane, of course. I said, well, let's pray right now, let's pray. So I prayed, you know? Um, and then that moved to the next stage, which is they, they found something. Gonna have a CT scan done. Will you pray with me again? Yes, still praying for the healing, still praying for the healing. And I had this sick feeling in my stomach because this is exactly how the pattern started with Roberta, exactly. And uh, that night I, I just went home and said, God, I can't, I can't go through this again. I just can't. I, I, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what to say. All I know is I, I can't do this again. You've got to step in and do something because I don't even know what I can do. I mean, I, I need your help. And um, so she went and she had the test and the CT scan showed a tumor. Now, ordinarily the next step is a biopsy, but with a cancer survivor, it isn't because if cancer comes back, it gets aggressive fast. And so uh, they wanted to go in and remove it right away. They would biopsy it after they removed it. So she was getting ready to, and she, she was coming to Thursday evening class, and so she was getting ready to go have it done on Friday. So Thursday, I said, we'll pray for you again. Not that I thought my prayers were going anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things you throw it up, thuds on the ceiling, and falls back to the floor. That's how it feels, right? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, except all I know is I'm getting involved sooner this time, because last time I didn't, and I always regretted that. And so uh, on Thursday, at the end of our little Bible study, uh, I say, well, everybody come here. She's you know, going to have tumor removed tomorrow, pray that it's benign, um, pray for. So um, everybody gathered around, and I'll never forget this, I'll put my hands on her, I'm starting to pray for her. I feel nothing, by the way. Spirit, nothing. Don't feel anything. I'm doing this almost through gritted teeth because I am afraid of what's going to happen on Friday. I am. And in my prayer, I'm actually praying that the tumor will be benign. And even in the back of my head, I'm thinking, but this is a lame prayer. You know, but what a lame prayer this is. It's okay, we have a tumor, God. But I, I have no faith in me 
to pray for anything else. I just don't. And so before I say amen, I say, and Lord, I'll never forget this, Lord, we won't be upset if it turns out the doctors are wrong and there's no tumor there when they check. It won't upset us at all. How's that for a horrible prayer? That's like no faith. Like on a scale of one to, you know, this thing here. I'm pretty near here. You know, I'm somewhere, I'm fully on doubt. I'm not quite anti-faith at this point, but I'm getting pretty darn close with that prayer. We, will, we won't be upset, Lord, if you do a miracle. It won't bother us, just so you know. Feel free to step in and do a miracle. So Diane said, well, um, just so you know, uh, I, I won't be in church on Sunday because part of all this is I'm going to have to get a catheter and I don't want to come to church with that. I said, yeah, I get that. It's fine. Victoria has to clean the seats. Don't come to church. That's okay. So uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, you know, that was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. Um, you know, we're here setting up and Diana walks in. Diane, what you doing here? Not that you're not allowed, but I thought you weren't going to be here. She says, you know what? They opened me up. They couldn't find anything. The tumor was gone. Okay. Hallelujah. And I mean, we have a film that shows the tumor, and they open it up. They're looking around, looking around, looking around. There's no tumor there. Right? How much faith did I have when I prayed that prayer? How much doubt did I have? Tons of it. But God stepped in and did it because he decided to. Right? The power lies with the Lord. We don't control this. And, and until we start understanding that we need to be honest about what we're praying for, honest about what happens, and if we make a mistake, say, you know what, God? Clearly, I blew it. Teach me. Teach me. Because, because we're grabbing on anything we can find, thinking there's a magic rabbit's foot out there, and it's just not true. We have to understand that we need to follow the truth wherever it leads us. We have to be that way. We have to seek the truth. We have to follow the truth. We can't go back and we might not, you know, uh, well, let me rewrite the history book here. You know, I'll tell you what really happened. Roberta got healed, but she got healed in heaven. No, that's not what we're praying for. Let's be honest. Let's just be honest. Because if we're not honest, if we don't throw out the false teaching, you know, Paul's right. Whatever's false, we have to drop. Because if you're hanging on to it, it's going to just pollute what is true. Remember, when Jesus says we're the salt of the earth and we can't lose our flavor, the only way salt loses flavor is to add things in. We need to drop it. We need to just get pure, unadulterated salt, pure as it can be, even if it's only in grain. We need that. That's what we need in our lives. We have to let go of the things that aren't true. We have to, we have to, we have to. Um, so let me just follow up just right here, just end up right here, and then we'll, we'll call quits. These people, and he's talking about the false teachers. This is Peter. Peter really, really, really gets off of the false teachers. If you want to read false teacher, man, read, read about Peter. He hates them. He you know, really hates them. These people are like springs without water. They are like mists driven by a storm. The blackest darkness is reserved for them. They speak empty, bragging words. And let me tell you something. These people brag. It's unbelievable to me. It's uncomfortable to me. I couldn't do it. They'll be walking around, and if, if no one's amen and shouted for a while, they'll say something like, you know, I'm preaching a lot better than you guys are listening, and then everybody has to applaud. You know, it's like, oh, my gosh. It's like I wouldn't have the nerve. They make their appeal to the evil desires that come from sin's power. They tempt new believers who are just escaping from the company of sinful people, and that's the sad thing. New believers get pulled in. I was involved in this when I was a teenager because it came through right after the Charismatic Movement. This stuff came through. I got involved in it. 
They promise to give freedom to these new believers, but they themselves are slaves of sinful living. How are they going to give you, how are they going to give you freedom? You want to, you, you, you want to hurt your heart for, for, for the evening? Go home and um, Google um, uh, Kenneth Copeland jet and, and watch the saga of him praying for his jet and people giving him money to buy it. It's, it's just, you'll have to go shower afterwards. Um, but they promise, but, but they are themselves are slaves to sinful living. That's because people are slaves to anything that controls them. And then he finally ends up this way, saying, they may have escaped the sin of the world. <laughs> they may have come to know our Lord Jesus Christ. But what if they are once again caught up in sin? That's what he's saying. You got out of sin, and he got pulled back in. It doesn't matter what it was. It pulled you back in. And what if it has become their master again? By the way harder to get out the second time. I don't know if anybody's gone through this cycle. I have with my peep sins, whatever. And, you know, Jesus has released me before and I've gone back. Harder, harder, harder to get out the second time. So, you know, it says it's, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Because he's saying if they get pulled back in, it's going to be harder for them to get out. Only now they think God failed them because they're listening to false teachers. We have to say, you know what? the truth we hold on to, the other stuff we throw away, and we're just going to keep following Jesus Christ. So I'm going to drop this side here, uh, and we're going to start talking about the other side. But I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe the miracles are here. I believe that God does still heal. I believe he wants to really see the miracles alive in his church today. I just don't think this is the way to get it. I don't think we need to turn to something beyond the scripture to get them back. I don't think the problem is in Scripture at all, and I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's our heart, and we will get there eventually. But in the meantime, we will follow the truth where it leads us. Would you all please pray with me?